Boker Tov, good morning everyone. Shalom and welcome to this beautiful uh, Tuesday morning, third day of the week. It is a glorious, uh, beautifully sunshiny day and I'm glad to be with you on the Aliyah a day. Baruch Hashem. And uh, as some of you may know, today is is actually my birthday on the uh, the common calendar, February 26th. I was born in a tiny little hamlet of uh, Bedford, Texas, right here in Tarrant County. I'm a native of the area, so Baruch Hashem. So uh, thank you very much for all of your wonderful birthday wishes, and I... There's uh, so many of them, I won't have probably the opportunity to respond personally to every single one of them, but please know that I uh, thank you very, very much, and I'm very happy to be alive, I'm very happy to be healthy, I'm happy to have my beautiful wife, and our daughters, and everybody else, all of our children, all of our family, all of our spiritual children, all of you precious people, and uh, my biggest gift is that I get to sit down with you today. Uh, with people from all over the world, and uh, study the Torah. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, actually. Aside from maybe Jerusalem, eating a hamburger at the Burger Bar. But other than that, I want to be right here. So, Baruch uh, <clears> Hashem, <throat> glad that you're here this morning. So, hallelujah. We are, as I was saying, uh, we are in the parasha, Vayakel. We are in uh, chapter 35 still. We're going to be in from 35 going into 36, um, Baruch Hashem, the third Aliyah. And uh, hopefully there's going to be some really intriguing, insightful, amazing uh, information for all of us to uh, glean today on this uh, February 26th, Baruch Hashem. By the way, in case y'all are wondering, and many people are asking, I wonder how old he is. I am three years old today, so thank you very much uh, for all of that. Hallelujah. <clears throat> all right. Chapter 35, in um, verse 30, it says, Moshe said to the children of Israel, See, Adonai has proclaimed by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He filled him with godly spirit, with wisdom, insight, and knowledge, and with every craft to weave designs, to work with gold, silver, and copper, stone cutting for setting, and wood carving, <clears throat> to perform every craft of design. He gave him the ability to teach him and Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He filled them with a wise heart to do every craft of the carver, weaver, designers, and embroiderer, with the turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, and the linen, and the weaver, and the artisans of every craft, and makers of design. Chapter 36. Bezalel shall carry out with Olab and every wise-hearted man with whom Hashem has endowed wisdom and insight to know and to do all the work of the labor of the sanctuary, Everything that Adonai has commanded. Moshe summoned Bezalel, Aliab, and every wise-hearted man whose heart Hashem endowed with wisdom, everyone whose heart inspired him to approach the work to do it. For Moses' presence, they took the entire gift that the children of Israel had brought for the work of the labor of the sanctuary to do it. But they continued to bring him free will gifts morning after morning. Everybody was just enthusiastic. 
enthusiastic givers. God loves enthusiastic givers. All the wise people came, and those performing all the sacred work, each of them from his work that they were doing. And they said to Moshe as follows. This is one of my one of my favorite lines of the entire Torah, but particularly of this parasha. The people are bringing more than enough for the labor of the work that Adonai has commanded to perform. Don't you just love that? The people are bringing more than enough. They, they come to Moses, and this is the problem. This is a good problem. This is the problem they uh, they bring to Moshe. Hey, Moshe, yes, what's the problem now? Here's the problem. The people are bringing too much. We have too much. We have all that we need to do the building. We have all the gold, all the silver, all the precious stones. We have all the linen, all the uh, uh, the wool, all, all the precious uh, techelet. We have everything we need, and now we have surplus. And so what does Moses do? He says, well, now I can uh, use that surplus and I can buy myself a private jet. I can buy myself a big house. I can now have a house on the, you know, I've always wanted a, uh, a, a big house on the, uh, the, the shoreline of the Red Sea and uh, big fancy cars. I can have limos and Ur can drive me around. And uh, that's why I can become an urban legend. And uh, that's what he did. He took the excess and he used it for himself. No. Of course he didn't. What did he do? It says in verse 6, Moshe commanded that they proclaim throughout the camp saying, man and woman shall not do more work toward the gift of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. But the work had been enough for all the work to do and there was extra. You know, I've, I've actually commented on this for years that uh, I look forward to those opportunities where I get to stand up and tell all of our people <clears throat> near and far, because everybody, and this is true, everybody at Sar Shalom is very generous, and the vast majority of people are faithful to uh, to give, to be regular tithers, to to give when we have uh, special campaigns like we're, we're doing or whatever. And it's my pleasure to get up and say, hey, we have all that we need, uh, we have more than enough, and you have to restrain people from giving. That's wonderful. And may Hashem continue to have it so that um, we, ha we, we get to say that. I was about to say we have to say that. But rather, we have the joy of standing up and saying, Hey, listen, we have more than enough and everybody restrain yourself from giving. We'll wait, wait for the next thing we have to do. Wait, wait for the next project. And that's wonderful. It's beautiful. And then they had extra. I've always said that, uh, you know, if, if everybody would just give on whatever level that they're you know, Hashem has called them to give. I'm talking about their income level and tithing and so on, giving to special Sadaka campaigns. If everybody would just, if everybody would be involved, not not three percent of the people, not five percent of the people, not eighty percent of the people, not even ninety percent of the people. If everybody would just be hundred percent involved, every single person, every single family, then this scripture would come true every single time. There would be more than enough. And no, we're not going to drive, uh, we're not going to fly private jets. We're not going to have Sar Shalom 1. It'd be very cool. But we're not going to have Sar Shalom 1. Alright, so <clears throat> going right along here. I want to give a shout out to my Talmud, Aleph Mimtav. And uh, who advised me that uh, Vayakel had some amazing things to say. By talking, I mean not Vayakel, Slika. Uh, Midrash Tankuma. On Vayakel, that's what I meant to say. 
Midrash Tankuma had some amazing things to say about the Torah portion. So I started to uh, read it and I uh, found his assessment to be accurate and true. And uh, as a result, I want to share some of these amazing insights uh, for all of us. There's so much uh, to learn. So it says, The Holy and Blessed Be He said to Yisrael, Observe my mitzvahs and my statutes. This is in relationship to the fact that he's designated uh, Bezalel by name. Observe my mitzvot and my statutes. Why? For the reward of performing a mitzvah is a mitzvah. And the transgressions cause another transgression. This is a principle we talked about before. It's worth repeating now because it's been repeated now. <laughs> and that is that... Uh, Whenever the, the beautiful thing about doing a mitzvah is that it always leads to another mitzvah. So people, there's a mindset. There has been a mindset in Judaism um, that why would you have somebody to light the candles, uh, for instance, on Friday night when they're still cooking? Or maybe they're still watching TV. Or maybe, you know, they're not doing anything else but lighting the candles or whatever. The, the, the same could be said for somebody who says, why would you teach a, a Gentile to study Torah? Or why would you encourage a Gentile to eat kosher or uh, keep uh, or celebrate Pesach or, or anything, any other holiday? Pick, pick any holiday. <clears throat> why would you encourage a Gentile to do that? Because the mindset has been among some, some that Judaism is kind of an all or nothing. and But the prevalent mind is, look... If I can get a lady to light candles on Friday night, she's not doing anything else. The reality is, according to the sages, that when she lights the candles, as those holy candles are burning, that will inspire her soul to consider other mitzvot related to the Shabbos. Likewise, if I can encourage a non-Jew to sit down and uh, celebrate uh you know, some holidays, Pesach or whatever. And uh, somebody might say, well, I thought you had to be circumcised to en enjoy the Pesach. No, you have to be circumcised in order to eat the Pesach lamb. And because there's no temple, no Jew, we haven't in 2,000 years, eaten the Pesach lamb. When the temple comes again, and maybe sooner in our time, we have the Pesach lamb again, yes, you will have to be circumcised in order to partake of it. Uh, but that's an aside. The point being is if I can get a, a, a non-Jew to eat, start eating kosher or whatever, then uh, that will lead to another mitzvah, lead to another mitzvah, lead to another mitzvah. In other words, that's how conversion happens. That's how you convert somebody who is either uh, a secular Jew or a non-Jew. Uh, spiritually, if you want to be honest, there's really no difference between the two. Uh, so this is the reality, saying that one mitzvah leads to another says that Ben Azai says the performance of a mitzvah leads to another mitzvah and the performance of a transgression leads to another transgression. Rabbi Mir said for every mitzvah that a man performs, he is given an angel to watch over him. Isn't that great? So it says if he perform many mitzvot, many angels are given to watch over him as it says in the scripture in Tehillim 91.11, he will charge his angels concerning you. As long as a person performs many mitzvot, he acquires a good name for himself. Now, this is getting into another uh, topic about a good name. It says, as long as a person performs mitzvot, he acquires a good name for himself. 
you find that a person is called by three names. One is the name of his, that, that his parents call him. Another is what people call him. And, an, and another is the name that he acquires for himself. The best of all is the name that he acquires for himself. Why? Because the reality is, a good name is the only thing that we can take with us to Shemayim. And at the same time, it's the only thing that we get to leave behind. It's a good name. And it's the most valuable thing, as we're going to learn uh, here in just a, just a quick second. But it's the only thing we can take with us, and it's the only thing that we can leave behind. <clears throat> I often say, I was just saying yesterday downtown talking to the, uh, the inmate class, that um, when you're tempted to, I was talking to them about the fact that we all, uh, as Zeke and Yosef said in his class um, last Wednesday, when we perform a mitzvah, it's not that we're just performing a mitzvah, but rather we're actually pulling down Kedusha from Shemayim. <clears throat> In other words, we're actually causing heaven to connect to earth every mitzvah we do, whether it's picking out a box of cereal because it has a hexer on it, or we're wrapping tefillin, or we're visiting the sick, or we're taking uh, groceries to somebody who can't get out, whatever the mitzvah is, we're actually causing at that moment heaven and earth to, to, to become one. And as a result, we're impacting other people's lives. And so when we're tempted to sin, whatever that sin is, we have to ask ourselves, is it worth everything? Because our failure and, and, and God forbid our, our fall will have a negative impact on scores, perhaps hundreds, in some cases, thousands of people. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not very much anybody. I don't teach. I'm not on the internet. I'm not on this or that. But what you don't realize is that there are scores and perhaps hundreds of people that know you, that interact with you, or just are aware of you. You don't even really know them. That if Hasatan Kersbihi could trick you into eating the forbidden fruit, whatever that happens to be, it would have a negative impact on their life. It would, be, it would create, God forbid, a halul Hashem in their life. They would, which is a desecration of the divine name, Hasve Shalom. So it all boils down to whether or not we have a good name. Will we be known when people are speaking about us at our funeral? Hopefully Mashiach will return and, and uh, that will happen in our lifetime, maybe so. But if not, what will people say about us at our funeral? Will we have a good name? Because that's the only thing, as I said a second ago, the only thing we are allowed to take with us and it's the only thing we can leave behind is a good name. So it says the proof of us of this is, excuse me, that it is because Bezalel acquired a good name that he merited to do the work of the Mishkan as it is written, a good name is preferred to wealth and goodly favor over silver and gold. It's better, you know, it's better to have a good name to be wealthy. I mean, who doesn't want to be wealthy? I want to be wealthy. I want to be able to uh, do things, you know. I want to have uh, nice keepers. Who doesn't want to have a nice keeper, right? It says, from where do you know this? From what we read in this passage, see Hashem has designated by name Bezalel. 
And this is the meaning of the verse. A good name is better than fine oil, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. They said to Shlomo, What is the meaning of a good name is better than fine oil? And he said to him, When a person is born, he's not well known. But when he dies with a good name, his good deeds give him a good reputation. You want to be famous? Have a good name. Or you can have a bad name and still be famous, be infamous. <clears throat> so it says here, why did Shlomo say, or why did he not say that a good name is better than fine wine or fine honey? He disregarded all other liquids and said, then fine oil. Why? Because when you add water to oil, it floats to the top. But if you add water to any other liquid, the liquids intermingle. So, too, is the case of somebody with a good name. So, if you have a good name, your fine oil, that is, you float to the top. Whereas, if you were, if it was wine or whatever, it would just intermingle. Somebody with a good name, that person rises to the top. Nobody's going to care when you die whether you're wealthy or not except for maybe your relatives. But uh, no one's going to care. They're, they're going to care about is whether or not you had a good name, whether or not you were a good man. A good man and a good name is, is all that matters. Another explanation it says here in Midrash Tan Khuma. Another explanation. Fine oil that falls onto a fire is consumed, but a good name that falls on the fire does not become consumed, as it is said. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Avedigo came out from amidst the fiery furnace. Rabbi Yehuda bar Simeon said, We find that those who had fine oil entered a place of life, but came out dead, whereas those with a good name entered a place of death and came out alive. What he's talking about? He's talking about Nadav and Avihu, who entered into a place they weren't allowed to go, they weren't supposed to go. Presumably, they did so arrogantly. Um, and they had been anointed with the anointing oil. They had been anointed with the anointing oil. So, just in case people think, well, I'm going to make it because I'm uh, born of a Jewish stock, I'm born of a Jewish family, or maybe I'm just uh, my whatever, you know, you think you've been anointed somehow, and so you're going to make it? God says no. If you don't have a good name, the anointing oil doesn't matter. It'll be burned up on the fire. As it says, a fire came out from before Hashem and consumed them. However, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they weren't anointed with oil. They weren't anybody particularly special. But they had a good name. And as a result, when they entered out in, in, into the fiery furnace, it says, they came out alive. So a good name is what protects us from the fiery furnace. Not, um, you know... Not our status in life. This is why Yochan on the Immerser was talking to the, uh, the, the uh, at least some group of uh, Jews, Pharisees or whatever, and saying, don't think just because you have Abraham as your father that you're going to be A-OK -okay in the USA. Because if God needs to, he can make sons out of these stones. There are certain sects of Judaism that that... Um, that ideology persists. That if you're not Jewish, then uh, you're not even worthy of, of our efforts to bring you into the fold. And I'll tell you a sad story. 
This just happened. And uh, there was a inmate, and he committed a particular crime, and he's going to be in jail for a long time. He's going to be in jail for at least 20 years. He admits to the crime. He knows he's guilty. He's very serious. And so he's looking at 20 years, at least. So he's going to be in jail for a long time. So he had been attending my class for a little bit and, and whatever. And so he had been reaching out to certain, I won't say who, but certain Jewish sects that are very popular and asking them for study material. They wrote him back and said, are you Jewish? And he wrote back and said, no, I'm looking at conversion. I'm, I'm taking a class. I'm just very interested, trying to better my life while I'm in here. I'm going to be here for, you know, a long, long time. They wrote him back and said, you can't convert when you're in jail, which is true. You, you really, I mean, you can't officially convert. You can't go through all the steps. You can't convert when you're in jail. So you know what? You should just be a study Noahide. That's all you need to do. We're not going to send you any literature. He wrote him a couple times, basically got the same response. And so what happened? The man got discouraged. Unfortunately, he didn't talk to me, which is always a big mistake. Not just because it's me, but you should always talk to the rabbi before you make big decisions. But he cut himself off from everything, and he wrote me a letter, and he decided that he's going to convert to Islam. I know it's crazy. You're asking yourself, how in the world can you go from wanting to be a Jew to wanting to be a Muslim? I know, it's crazy. A normal person in normal circumstances wouldn't probably would not make such a rash thing. But that's what happens when somebody is rejected and emotionally scarred and you have to have all the other trauma, you're in jail, dark spirits, all those things. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen ultimately with this person. We'll do what we can. But the fact of the matter is, I just want to say this. Listen, you understand the idiocy of what this sect did to this person. Because, let's just suppose this person becomes a Muslim. Let's say that in 20 years or 25 years, this person gets out of prison and now he's deep, deep, deep Muslim. Now he, he flies away and goes off to Gaza and now he becomes part of Hamas. Or maybe he goes to Lebanon, becomes part of Hezbollah, and now he crosses the border and he starts killing Jews. Who's responsible? You can say well, the person is ultimately responsible. That's true. The person is ultimately responsible, yes. However, because we rejected somebody, now we created our own terrorist. Why? Because we're so arrogant to think that, uh, you know, because our anointing somehow is worth something, and it's like, no, it's your good name. This happened to the patriarchs, by the way. The sages tell us that the patriarchs rejected a lady. We don't know why. They rejected her for conversion. Instead, she went and married into Ishmael's family and later gave birth to Haman. So what I'm telling you has already happened. It's irritating, I know. It made me and Manasseh mad, but you know, Rokushim. So it says, we're judged by our smell, right? Listen to this. When someone goes to a shopkeeper to buy from him wine, honey, oil, and brine, then if the shopkeeper is clever, he smells the vessel. If it contained wine, he'll put wine in it. The same applies to a vessel of oil, honey, or brine. So when the Holy One sees a man who possesses the spirit of wisdom, he fills him with wisdom. This is the meaning of, I have filled him with the spirit 
that he already possesses. So just a lesson to us, God judges by our smell. So therefore, if we want God to fill us up with wisdom, then we need to have filled up this vessel, this cup, this bottle with wisdom. Because God's going to come around and smell us and say, what were you filled with? Brine or, or wine? Vinegar or wine? And we're going to say to him, Yain bevachasha. And he says, okay. Yain tov to that. All right, moving forward, I just want to share this part here um, in the time that we have left. Talking about, this is getting a little ahead of the, of the Aliyah today. Um, some of this we'll save for our upcoming Ali, Aliyah in this portion. But talking about Betzalel and, and the Ark. Very fascinating. It says here, Betzalel, uh, Betzalel's name, by the way, is, it, it, it is a um, con contraction, I guess, of the word Betzel El. Which is which means in the shadow of God. That's what his name means, in the shadow of God. Now, why is that important? Let's look. It says in the Midrash Tankuma, you do not find that Bezalel made any of the vessels of the Mishkan besides the ark. All the rest of the work and all the other vessels were made according to his word and his counsel. By the way, just thought popped in my mind going to what I'm doing, talking about the man in the prison. How ridiculous is it? Somebody reaches out to you three different times to receive literature and you tell them you can't convert while you're in prison. Well, that, that same group would also tell you that it takes a long time to study for conversion. So why not let the person study for 20 years and then when they get out, they can convert? I don't know. See, this is why you have to apply logic and common sense. This is why people need Lapid Judaism. But I digress. So it says here, why was the ark explicitly considered his work alone and then it was made by his hand? For the shadow of the Holy One, blessed be he, which is part of his name, Zel, for the shadow of, his, of the Holy One, blessed be he, is found there. For that is the place where he restricts his divine presence. So the place where God restricts his, his divine presence, talking about the Mishkan in general and the Ark in particular, is called the shadow of God. Okay? So therefore, the shadow of God is the manifestation of God, ultimately. So it says here, Hence he was called Betzael, for he made the shadow of the Holy One, blessed be he, El, between the two cherubs. As it says, I will meet with you there and I will speak with you. Okay? And it goes on to talk about how can God restrict himself, and we've covered that before, that God fills the whole earth and yet he is to be found in the tabernacle through contraction so the the question is often asked if the messiah is divine then how can he talk to himself the answer to that is since god fills the heavens and the earth how can he also be at the same time in the mishkan see these are already covered these questions are already covered in torah right but we're talking about here how the mishkan is the shadow of god in general, as I said, in particular, because it mentioned the cherubs, it's particular the, the ark is the shadow of God, made by a man whose name is in the shadow of God. So this takes us to the letter to the Colossians. 
and something that is read uh, in a negative way, generally. This is Paul's letter to his congregation in Colossia. And he says here, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, <clears throat> that is a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Now, very often this is read to insinuate that the Jews are judging the non-Jews, that is the Gentile believers, for not celebrating these festivals. But that doesn't make any theological sense whatsoever because Jews would not expect Gentiles to keep the Torah, which is why they're Gentiles. What does make sense is that if these former Gentiles have converted to Lapid Judaism, as it were, way back when, then their family members would be judging them. In other words, their pagan Gentile family members would be judging them for keeping the religious festivals, for keeping kosher, for keeping the new moon, for keeping the Sabbath day, and not for keeping Easter and Christmas and Halloween and all that other kind of stuff. That makes more sense, right? Of course, of course, right. The other way doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's completely, why would you care? If the, Why would the Jews care? If, hey, guys, you're not keeping. Of course you're not keeping. You don't even keep Torah. Why would I keep the holidays? But verse 17 is where I want to focus. It says, there, these are a shadow of the things to come. The reality is found in Messiah. So, people look at that negatively and say, these things, these, 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 these Torah mitzvahs, these Torah mitzvot, they're just a shadow. And my answer to that is a shadow is a good thing. You know, like it says in Psalm 91, that we'll be in the shadow of his wings. That's a good place, right? The, being in the shadow is good, right? Right. Especially if it's a shadow of God. And so it says here that the shadow of God is ultimately the ark of God, which represents what? The Torah of God. And the shadow of God also represents the tabernacle of God. Therefore, if we are, to go back to Paul's writings here, if we're in the new moon, if we're in the religious festivals, if we're in the kashrut, then that mean, and if we're in the Sabbath, then that means that we're in the shadow, which means what? It means that we're in the ark and or in the tabernacle. However, the fullness, the reality of all that is found in the Messiah. Of course, what's the problem? So he's saying, listen, don't let anybody judge you for keeping Torah. Why? Because while you're keeping Torah, it means that you're in the shadow of God, which is a good place. And you should just know that all those things speak about the Messiah anyway. So when they make fun of you for eating kosher, just say, hey, it's okay. I just want to read the rest of this little passage here in Colossians. And the uh, in just a few minutes here, because we're pretty much in the end of our Aliyah for today, but maybe this will help some people. It says, Do not let any, anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. How do we know that uh, the Apostle Paul here is not talking about the Torah? Because A, the Torah is the Word of God. It's the Scripture of God. It's the Holy Bible. And therefore, it's not false humility. Hasve Shalom. Secondly, Jews, and I can speak as a Jew, we do not worship angels. In fact, it's very much forbidden. But who does worship angels? 
And who does have false humility, a.k.a. false religion? Gentiles. So it says, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by his ligaments, sinews, grows as God's causes it to grow. The very word mitzvah, commandment, that very word in Hebrew means to connect. So if you're keeping the mitzvahs, you are by nature, or by definition rather, connecting to God. To not keep the mitzvah would be to disconnect from the head. Verse 20, since you died with Messiah to the basic principles of this world, is Torah the basic principles of this world? I don't know. Let's look at Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., is, is the Congress passing laws to make everybody keep the Torah? No. So therefore, the Torah is not the basic principles of this world. The Torah is the higher truth of reality. Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Torah is not the rules of the world. Torah is the rules of the divine. 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. The Torah is eternal, therefore nothing that it says is destined to perish ever. We will perish long before it perishes. It says here, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Is the divine Torah based on human commands and teachings? No. It's based on the teachings of God. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, he's not talking about Torah stuff. He's talking about whatever the Gentile pagans want you to do. So it says here in verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. The Torah is wisdom. It doesn't have an appearance of wisdom. What does have an appearance of wisdom? All the false religions of the pagans. With their self-imposed worship, is Torah self-imposed? No, it's God-imposed. Their false humility, is Torah false humility? No, it is humility. And their harsh treatment of the body, is Torah harsh treatment of the body? Uh, no. And it says, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Does the Torah lack value in retaining sensual indulgence? No. In fact, uh, the person who would testify that it does, in fact, pr provide a wonderful restraint is King David. And God said concerning King David, he is a man after my own heart. End of our Aliyah today. I listen. I hope you have a beautiful blessed and wonderfully amazing awesome day again thank you very very much for all the well wishes on uh, this uh, birthday of mine thank you very very much uh, god bless you with hashem's help we will be together tomorrow and uh, we'll have a beautiful day of study and other until then be nice to people <laughs> shalom shalom love you have a blessed day